from entertainment capital of the world, Las Vegas, I'm Christopher Calloway, and this is Creator Talks, the show where I interview writers and artists working in comic books and in other mediums. My guest on today's show is Mark Irwin. He is the senior editor of Inside Comics. He's been senior editor since June of 2016, but Mark has a very long history in comics. He is an inker, and he has done work for decades for Marvel and DC and Image Comics, including such titles as Detective Comics, Green Lantern, Justice League, Wonder Woman, and for Marvel, Doctor Strange, Captain America, Uncanny X-Men, Fantastic Four, and Mark did not tell me this, and I wish he had, for Dark Horse, Magnus Robot Fighter. Yeah, he did an issue of that, number four. The book was behind, he came in, and I knew I recognized his name when I saw it, but I just couldn't think from where. It was from that issue, one of my favorite issues of Magnus, beautiful issue. But we do talk about Mark's work on Aliens More Than Human with John Arcudi and Zach Howard. Mark also shares his experience and memories of his time at the Kubert School of Art, working for Heavy Metal Magazine as their art director, and for Wildstorm Products as their creative services manager, and Marvel's trading card division, Upper Deck. Plus, we're going to talk about a lot of the graphic novels and books he's put together for Inside Comics, including Clockwork Lives. That one was written by Kevin J. Anderson and Neil Peart. Yes, Neil Peart of Rush, and Mark is a big fan of the band Rush. So we're going to talk about his experience with the band. He's seen them many, many times. So that's part of our conversation as well, because, hey, this is Creator Talks. We're going to ask the fun questions that I ask all my guests when I kick back with the creator. So please join me now and Mark Irwin, here now on Creator Talks. Mark, welcome to Creator Talks. Hi, thanks for having me. Now, let me start with comic books and superheroes. You never read many superhero comics, did you? I mean, that wasn't really what you were into growing up. Well, I had a a mix, definitely a mix. I mean, I started with a lot of National Lampoon, creepy and eerie, heavy metal. I had a couple of uncles that were hippies in the 60s and uh, (laughs) early 70s, and they kind of graced me with their collection of Fabulous Hurry Freak Brothers and a lot of National Lampoon. I would say that I probably got a bigger education in comics from National Lampoon than just about anything else. It wasn't long after that that I did discover superhero stuff, but it wasn't the first. And the stuff that was shared with you by your uncles, what attracted you to it? Was it something about either the topic or was it the art? It was definitely the art. You know, I always drew. And uh, as far back as, you know, I can remember, as soon as I saw the art, I just knew I have to learn how to do this. That was what really got me. And what was the very first book that you laid your hands on that they gave you? I'm going to say it was a National Lampoon. And I believe that it was a compendium and there was a Bernie Wrightson cover on the compendium. And it was like a Judgment Day kind of uh, illustration with a hooded figure with the scales of justice and crowds of people like going up a hill toward the scales. And it really kind of blew me away. I was like, gosh, I can't believe somebody actually drew that. That would leave quite an impression. Well, you said ever since you read those, you wanted to learn how to do that. So how did you learn to draw? How did you go about educating yourself, getting the mentors you needed, the skills you needed? What was your path? I started picking up comics. You know, I had a distant relative who owned a, um, a drugstore. He used to return the comics that he sold in the store. He'd rip off the covers and then send them back. You know, he was a newsstand guy. He would give my parents a bunch of comics every year, like at Christmas time for me. So I would come downstairs and in the stocking, there'd be a bunch of ripped up old comics. I would take the comics and I would, you know, try and copy everything that I saw in them. And that was kind of my education for a really long time. We didn't have much money, so the paper was always scarce. Art supplies were always scarce. So a lot of times it was a ballpoint pen drawing of Batman or Spider-Man or something on the back of the yellow pages. And, and that was pretty much the way I learned for a really long time. I never really took art classes. I don't know why, probably just because I wasn't that bright. Uh, I just never really like realized that I could learn that way. And it wasn't until much later that my girlfriend, when I was a teenager, who is now my wife, kind of convinced me to kind of follow through with a dream and uh, go to the Kubert School. 
And that's kind of where really I learned everything that I had to know to get a job in the industry. So did you uh, graduate from the Kubert School? I did in 1995. And who were some of your contemporaries there? Who were you taking classes with? Oh my gosh. There was a lot of guys in front of me and a lot of guys behind me. At that time, not too many guys out of my actual graduating class, they didn't necessarily go directly into comics. You got me with a tricky question. Um, one of my uh, roommates was Toby Cypress, who um, does a lot of like indie stuff. His stuff's actually quite amazing. He was a year or two behind me, but he lived in the big house that we lived in. Another one of my roommates, Lethal Jones, he's an animator for Warner Brothers. There was like a variety of guys, Tramel Isaac, who was a year ahead of me. He is an animator that does a lot of video game stuff now. And um, he's kind of been all over the world, actually, on the back of his animation skills. Dave Micus, who's another inker, and then he kind of jumped into coloring there for a while as well. He's kind of been around Marty Eglund who did stuff for DC. He was a couple years ahead of me. So it was like a lot of guys like that. Guys like Jesse Delperdang, who's a really great inker and artist in his own right. He was here behind me. So it was kind of like a lot of that. They have said to me, my guests who have been to the Kubert School, that they were a little overwhelmed at first because everybody was so freaking good. <laughs> and they thought they were good because they were, they were in a group of people day to day that they weren't really artists, so they really stood out. But then when they were in, in there with other artists learning, then it became really difficult. Did you find it difficult? Did you feel a lot more competition when you got into the Cooper School? On every single level. Uh, <laughs> actually, um, in many ways, I'm kind of amazed that I ever made it, um, to be honest with you. It, uh, when I came to the Cuber School, I was like the guy in high school that drew Eddie from Iron Maiden on his math homework. Mm -hmm. um, and, and literally, that was about the extent of my background as an artist. You know, the portfolio that I sent to the Cubert School to get accepted was hastily thrown together. I didn't really understand even how to build a portfolio. I mean, I, I still am not sure why they accepted me, to be honest with you. And then I came to the Cubert School and everybody knew how to do everything. Everybody in my class could paint and, you know, understood how to actually draw a page, a comic page of art, you know, something that I never bothered learning. They understood how to use all the tools. They all understood how to ink, all those things. And I was completely clueless. And on top of that, I was a California guy. I was a surfer kid. All of a sudden, I'm living in New Jersey, completely on my own, really for the first time in a what I consider to be a fairly foreign land. I also had to work full time. So I had to get like a job immediately um, stocking shelves at like the local shop, right? Work in the graveyard shift. So I would work the graveyard shift five or six days a week and then go to school and tackle the homework that the Cuber school gave us, which was a ton. It was pretty overwhelming. I almost did not make it out of my first year. And I remember uh, one of my lettering teachers, Tim Harkins actually pulled me aside and he was like, you know, when you do the work, it's great, but you're only here like half the time because you're at home sleeping because you're <laughs> working so much. He's like, I don't, I don't think you're going to make it. Mm -hmm. He kept telling me that he was like, I don't think you're going to make it. I don't think it. And basically at one point near the end of the first year, one of my roommates, uh, LaFell Jones, he's the guy I told you about works for Warner brothers. He and my girlfriend and now wife, she had come out to visit me and they basically had an intervention. They sat me down and they were like, you need to not quit. You need to see this through kind of like right at the ship um, near the end of that first year. And so I made it through the first year, barely. I came home for the summer. And by that point, I had kind of gotten a clue a little bit. I had a portfolio that was full of lettering and inking samples. And I went to Comic-Con. I didn't know what I was doing, but I started talking to professionals. A guy named Mark McKenna, who's a pro inker, he took a look at my stuff and he said, hey, you know, your lettering is really good. I can get you work right now. And if you're interested, uh, I am looking for an apprentice as an inker. And your ink stuff is, it's not great, but, you know, I can see that you have some skill. Let's see if we can make you better. And he happened to live in New Jersey. When I got back from uh, the summer in San Diego, I came back to New Jersey and I started working for Mark. One thing led to another. He started hooking me up with other anchors in New Jersey. There was quite a few guys like Ken Branch and John Holdridge, Mike Sellers, who also 
taught at the school and was an inker himself. He took me on and I started, so I, I was able to work there for him. And I also worked in the Hubert School store. So it was kind of like just this immediate cast iron series of we're going to make this guy into an artist no matter what. And, and you know, this, uh, I don't know, whatever you call it, like a cauldron, a bubbling mm-hmm. cauldron of art. Mm-hmm. And, and I, everything I was doing was art related finally. And things just started to click for me at that point. And I started getting pro work. You know, one thing kind of led to another. So it was like full immersion and you're going to school and you're doing work as well in art. Wow. That's great. That's great. It probably helped you make it. <laughs> uh, it totally helped me make it. I mean, it was like the, all the light came on finally for the first time in my dim-witted brain you know by the second year it was like now I'm kind of getting this and it was nice to be able to do an assignment and turn around and like crank out blacks or backgrounds on a page for somebody so it was like I'd turn in my assignment the next day but then I'd also get a paycheck the next day it was like wow this is what it's like so that really helped and you know I started sending out ink samples and all that kind of stuff as well Got a lot of rejection letters. <laughs> <laughs> Happens to most people in any kind of job. Exactly. When you graduated, where did you head to then? Were you still working with Mark as an apprentice after graduating? I was still actually assisting most of those guys. But what happened was a couple weeks before graduation, I was really friendly with the Cuberts. Andy and I used to play basketball in the basement of the school and his office was right next to Mike Sellers. So I got to know Andy really well. And then Adam, Adam was the intimidating one. He was the guy, everybody was like totally worshiping him because of his work on Wolverine. And I think he was like, you know, I'm not going to deal with the kids. And he would just go into his office and he was kind of intimidating. So everybody was a little scared of him. And I remember I was working in the school store. Another kid came into the school store, which was connected to all those basement offices in the school. And he comes in and he goes, Adam, Adam Cooper wants to see you. And I was like, oh my God, what did I do? And uh, I went back to his office and he said, hey, uh, you're graduating in a couple of weeks, right? And I was like, yeah. And he saw, and I heard you have a kid now. My wife and I had had a daughter in my second year of the school. So I was really desperate for a job. I mean, I was like, I got to figure this out. You know, my whole goal was to become an anchor at that point, And I was trying to figure things out. And I said, yeah. And he goes, well, are you interested in becoming the art director at Heavy Metal? And I was like, what? He's like, you took the base steps in mechanicals class, right? You know how to do all that stuff. I was like, yeah, of course I do. And in my head, I'm like, no, I don't remember that class at all. (laughs) uh, What I didn't know at the time was that Adam for years had been lettering all the foreign strips that you see in heavy metal magazine they would send him the translations and then he would hand letter and re-letter all of these foreign strips those guys both adam and andy are just crazy talented they can do it all people know them as pencilers but they can do everything literally the day after graduation i started working at heavy metal magazine in manhattan that was awesome you know it was like my dream job but right after i started there literally two weeks after i started working there i got a letter from wildstorm offering me a job and uh, an apprenticeship. And it was a chance to come home, come back to San Diego. So I jumped on that. I got one of my classmates to actually replace me as the art director of Heavy Metal. So I didn't leave them in a lurch. Good job. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) well, you know what? Everything about Heavy Metal was great. Kevin Eastman treated me so well. It was like a dream come true working there. I mean, that was the magazine I grew up on. You know, I wanted to draw that kind of art. I didn't want to leave them in a lurch. And I managed to get like a couple projects done in my time there. Anyway, yeah. So I left, went to Wildstorm, which I got into Wildstorm because I was sending ink samples to them the whole time. And one of my teachers at the school, Jim McWeeny, who was kind of a humor teacher, his brother, Tom McWeeny, was an inker at Wildstorm. And Jim was really friendly and he came over to our house a couple times and, um, you know, hung out and he was into a lot of the same music we were into and all that kind of stuff. He was a really good guy. And he would take my inking samples and he would send them to Tom. And then Tom would Xerox them and basically redline them, kind of go through them and point out all the screw ups I did. And he would send them back to me. And so I would look at the thing. I'd be like, gosh, you know, I kind of learned from that. I just kept redoing ink samples and I'd send like three or four to him every week. Eventually he sent one back that didn't have any corrections on it. He's like, I think you figured it out. (laughs) And uh, got a phone call from Sarah Becker, who was one of the editors there. And 
offering me the apprenticeship. So I took it and uh, it was a chance to come home. So how long did you stay there before going off into your own venture? I was at Wildstorm for five years, from 95 to 2000. And then uh, when DC bought out Wildstorm, by that point, I'd had my second daughter. DC kind of methodically started cutting all the books, as well as calling the internal um, stuff that we were doing at Wildstorm. So at the time at Wildstorm, I was like the art director for their consumer products department. And DC already had a consumer's products department, so they didn't need it. So that got cut. And then the books I was inking got cut. So it was like, okay, how am I going to make money now? <laughs> um, so I left Wildstorm. I went to work at Upper Deck, a trading car company. It was kind of a jack of all trades there initially, helping them start their entertainment department. And then uh, eventually I became art director for that department. I was there for 10 years working on all sorts of stuff. And I learned so much there. You know, everything from production to how to make toys to design stuff to, uh, gosh, you name it. And really learned a lot of the business on the other side of the table, being a brand director, all of those things. You know, I worked on Yu-Gi-Oh! I actually ran the very first world championship for Yu-Gi-Oh! in Madison Square Garden. I built that all by myself. That was a huge learning experience for me. And just all these things I didn't have the previous skill set for. I learned a lot of Wildstorm as well. Ted Adams was there at the time and was kind of a mentor to me. So I learned a lot from him. Ted started IDW and just a really smart guy, really knows comics. Both those places, like I just learned so much. And then in 2010, Upper Deck had some uh, some mishaps in upper management. Most of the company got laid off, including myself. And at that point, I was doing other stuff outside of Upper Deck. And I just decided to start my own company. And uh, I had a creative services company called uh, Creative Militia. Basically worked out of the house and did that for about six years, six or seven years. All of that time, even when I was at Upper Deck, even when I was at Wildstorm, I did a lot of freelance inking. So I was inking for Marvel and DC and Dark Horse um, and Image and other companies like all along. And then uh, in 2016, Insight Editions, which was a boutique book publisher. They do like super beautiful coffee table books. If you have like the art of Star Wars or the art of Harry Potter or whatever, there's a good chance that Insight published that. And they called me out of the blue. They found me on LinkedIn of all things and asked me if I wanted to help them start a comic imprint <laughs> that I would run. And I was like, uh, that sounds amazing. That's kind of how I started at Insight. And it literally has been a, another massive learning process because I know a lot about how to art direct comic. I know a lot about how to edit a comic. I know a lot about how to work with creative people and talent. And you know, I've been hiring artists since I worked at you know Heavy Metal. So I know how to do all of those things. And I understand like how to get things printed and all those kind of things. But what I didn't really understand was by starting an imprint from scratch, literally I had to think of everything. I had to sit down with our, the art director at Insight and tell them, you know, like, this is how I want the spine of every one of our books to look. We have to create a logo. So I went out and like had to hire Ryan Hughes to create a logo. And everybody was like, why are we hiring somebody to create a logo? Because like, we have to have our own logo. All of those kind of things. Teaching, working with our sales group to teach them really how to sell comics because that's not what they do. And it's not the language that they speak or the people that they deal with. Same with our marketing group, you know, especially comics today, so much of the marketing, it starts from the day that you sign the contract all the way through the lifespan of the comic until sometimes well after the comic's been out for a while. All of those things, like just teaching and growing, not only teaching other people what I think works the best, but also learning on my own, like, about production things and how to work within a bigger company that doesn't do that, how to make sure that the things that I'm trying to do get done the right way and all of those things, you know, running social media. I never thought I'd have to be a social media marketer, but I am, you know? <laughs> the comics that you are producing through Inside Comics are different from other comics today in the U.S. And tell me what makes those books stand out, what makes them so unique from other publishers' offerings? I'd like to think that there's a few differences. The biggest difference is when I first came to Insight, they had 
already acquired four or five properties at that point. They didn't know what to do with the properties. They just knew that they wanted to do comics and they thought pretty much the best way to do that would be to go out and get the rights to a couple of European books. Because they did that, And I came in and I was basically handed four or five books and said, okay, here's your first four or five properties. And then you'll figure out the rest of the line. And I was like, oh, okay. And uh, (laughs) the reality is I love BD. I love European comics. Again, I grew up on heavy metal. So I love that stuff. And what my thought process was, Inside Editions is known for their quality of print. Again, their books are gorgeous. The best printing, the best binding, the best paper quality. All of those things are really what make Insight kind of stand apart from the pack. And I wanted to bring that to the graphic novel format. They didn't want to publish floppies. They only wanted to do graphic novels. So um, my thought process, again, sitting down with our art director and all of our designers was to craft a really beautiful package that all of these stories that they had already acquired could be purposed in. So our hardcover books uh, have like a very unique set look to them. They're a little bit wider and a little bit taller than a typical trade paperback or even trade hardback. And the reason for that is because we want to have lay flat binding. We don't want any of the art to get lost in the gutters. We just want our books to stick out a little bit, but not in such a ridiculous way that it screws up your bookshelf. Right. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. Know? you. Thank you very much. Because um, <laughs> we get that. We get that. Uh-huh. Um, so, you know, so that was kind of the initial thought process. And then um, along the way, we started getting submissions. We kind of opened up that pipeline and started getting submissions and really trying to bring in stories that hit a few different areas. We wanted to make sure that we did a lot of genre entertainment. You know, genre stuff is going to be great no matter what. It's always good to do sci-fi. It's always good to do fantasy. All of those things work with the right story. But we didn't want to do superheroes. We wanted to make sure that whatever we put out, we were trying to be at least a voice or an advocate for equality and trying to be more PC and more, I don't even know if PC is the right word, but just trying to be more aware Mm -hmm. of all the issues that people face today. And we wanted to make sure that those issues were confronted squarely and and were really put out in a hopeful way across our line. And I think for the most part, we've been really good with that. I mean, we have books that are definitely just straight up, excuse the expression, but balls to the wall, fun, comic escapades. But then we also have books that are far more serious and confront real issues and talk about real stuff. Um, We're trying to be a little bit of everything to everybody with the exception of the superhero market. We recognize that the big two are out there and we're not playing in their sandbox. (laughs) You're not doing anything digitally, like digital comics. You might have something that's like a Kindle version or something like that, but you don't really do that. Not so much. Um, There are reasons for that that are a little bit beyond my control. We do have the ability to do all of that. And I know that internally we want that to happen. We do have some distribution challenges that have prevented that from occurring yet. It is coming soon. Um, It is definitely an arena that we all want to play in. Well, you talked about the variety of titles and some of them just being, you know, balls of the wall, fun, exciting action, and then some being much more serious matter. And one that I saw is The Invisible Empire. Isn't that the latest one that just came out? Yeah, Invisible Empire came out earlier this week. And that one's one of the most serious and darker books we've done about a real event that took place in our history here in the U.S. uh, in the 30s. It's a rough one. It's a story of a young woman who unfortunately was attacked, raped, and basically left for dead by a U.S. senator who also happened to be a Grand Dragon in the KKK. And she was able to survive for long enough to give a deathbed recounting of what happened to her in effect brought not only brought him down obviously but it also kind of pulled the wool off of america's eyes about what the kkk was all about at that time she ended up dying with this confession and this full recounting of what happened it's a tragic story but it's also a story of strength and courage and at a really frankly dark time in america you know the artists that we brought in for the book we purposely chose an artist that he went super realistic, 
very almost EC from the 50s kind of look to his people. The bad guys are bad and the good guys are good. And you can really see it on their faces. We printed it purposely in black and white as well because we thought the story was super stark. And we just wanted this real true crime narrative to come forth with it rather than to try and soften the blow by making it too cartoony or any of those things. We really wanted the events of what happened to really hit home because it is very factually based. It sounds like a very powerful story, a very powerful telling of what happened, and the art is very striking. If I understand, the writer, uh, writing team, Mickey Nelson, Todd Wagner? It's Mickey Nielsen and Todd Warger, yeah. And the artist you mentioned? Mark Forstel is from uh, Argentina. He used to be uh, one of the lead writers at Blizzard and now does a ton of different things. He writes a lot of comics. He writes a lot of books and novels. Um, and Todd is a historian. He's actually nominated for Emmy or an Academy Award. I can't remember which one for one of the documentaries that he did based around some historical events that had taken place in his hometown. So he's a guy that really nailed all the research and really got in depth with what happened. And that's just one of the books that are out, the most recent one, and there's many, many others in your catalog. And another one that I saw that caught my attention was Clockwork Lives. And I was looking at the credits and I'm like, Neil Pert. Now, Mark's a big Rush fan. I wonder, <laughs> yep, <laughs> it is. So <laughs> tell me about that book and how you met up with him. Long, convoluted story, but the reality of that is full disclosure. And anybody who knows me is just laughing and listening to this right now. Yes, I am a massive Rush fan. You know, beyond my family and surfing, it's probably my favorite thing. And uh, <laughs> I had met Kevin Anderson many times over the course of the years, like at different comic conventions and that sort of thing. And I would go and talk to him because I knew he knew Neil and I knew, you know, he was not necessarily tied to Rush, but he knew the guys. And so I'd go and like talk to him. And I think for a while, Kevin kind of just blew me off. He didn't really know what I did or anything like that. And he would just be like, Oh, okay. You know, whatever crazy fan. And, um, <laughs> One day he comes walking by at a convention and this is right after I think I had started an insight and he saw our booth and he saw a bunch of our books and he was like, what is all this? And I said, oh, well, this is what I'm doing, publishing these books. And he's like, oh, you're a publisher. And I said, yeah. He's all, oh, oh, hey, we should talk. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, so we ended up kind of hanging out and talking for a while and actually got along really well. And I had read Clockwork Angels, which was the novel that Neil and he had written based on the album, the final album that Rush put out. And they put out the sequel, Clockwork Lives. Frankly, it's even better than Clockwork Angels was. We started talking and I said, you know, graphic novel treatment of this would be awesome. Kevin was like, that's exactly why I wanted to talk to you because Neil wants to do that. And I said, okay. I didn't have any involvement directly with Neil. It was all with Kevin, but Neil did make one specific request, which was to um, try and make as many of the artists on the book as we could Canadian, which we did do. We <laughs> reached out. There's quite a few Canadian artists on that book. You know, I talked to Hugh Syme, He's the guy that does all of Russia's album covers and is kind of like their artistic director. He did the cover for the book, this first comic cover he's ever done. Yeah, that book just came together and it was a labor of love for everybody involved. And I was really super proud to work on it. I think I may have the only copy in existence that Neil actually signed. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, which I'm very, you know, thankful and proud of. So, yeah, that was a great treat. I actually just finished working on a massive book with Rush. One thing led to another, and I ended up working with Rush on a big book about their touring history, and that comes out later on this year. So, yeah, it's been kind of a dream come true getting to work with the band. And those are just a couple titles. I mean, there's other ones that look great after Houdini, before Houdini, uh, Jin. What have you found so far are your strongest selling titles? We've had a few ones that have jumped out. A Million Ways to Die Hard got a lot of heat and uh, has been kind of a study seller. Frank Thierry wrote that. Frank's huge right now, and people really love his work. And he was the right guy. You know, he had the right voice for John McClane. And so that book has been kicking up. Mark Teixeira drew that one. After Houdini and before Houdini, a young writer named Jeremy Holt, who we actually ended up doing four books with Jeremy so far. All four have been just really unique He's got a unique voice. He 
he approaches things in a kind of different way than many comic writers I've worked with. And I like his stuff. Those books have done really well. I was lucky enough to get John Lucas to draw both those books. John's one of the most underrated and woefully underappreciated guys in this industry. Um, He's an amazing artist. He can draw anything. There's an innate sense of humor to his work as well. He's just a fantastic artist, and he was really the right guy to get Victorian era, early turn of the century era look correct for that book. So he was great. We had a book that came out earlier this year called They, Volume 1. Volume 2 will be coming at the beginning of next year. And I hesitate to say this because I think we're still doing pretty incredible titles, but it might be the best book that I've had the privilege to work on. It's uh, from a Swedish team, uh, Sarah Elfgren and Carl Johnson. And it's one of the most beautiful books I've ever read or looked at. Uh, the art is unbelievable. The story is so amazing and sad. And I thought I knew Norse mythology inside out. You know, I loved reading that stuff as a kid. And I've read every Walt Simonson Thor comic. You know, like I've, mm-hmm. I've, read, I've read all that stuff and, and I love it all. But this turns Norse mythology on its head. It was just an approach and a thought process I'd never seen before. Very female, empowering, very. Gosh, just gorgeous and sad. And when people read the second half, they're just going to be devastated. It's so good. That's probably my favorite book that we published this year. But I say that knowing that upcoming, I have a book called Buyan, which is another beautiful, sad tale based in Russian folklore, written by a team of Basque, Croatian, and Gaelic people. So very, very international, very unique in his storyline, but it's a story of a guy who basically gets caught between the Golden Horde, Genghis Khan's Golden Horde, and the Crusading Knights who are coming to stop the Golden Horde from invading Europe. And he's kind of caught between the two of them in Mongolia, and his village gets destroyed, and his wife dies. And he survives, but he is determined to meet his wife again on the island of Buyan which is the island of the dead. And it's kind of about his quest to reach her, despite all of this madness and chaos of real history going on around him. It's just a beautiful, stark, sad book. But just one of those stories that grabs you and you're like, Ashley, I have to print this. I have to show this story to the world. Now, is that for this year or 2020? That is this year. That one comes out, I believe, in late October. And so what are your plans for 2020? We have a variety of books coming out in 2020. We'll be continuing Monster Allergy, which is a middle grade title that we've been publishing. The first two issues are already out. That is a huge property in Europe that at one point it was uh, animated and it was on Netflix. And it's a story of a kind of outcast kid, total goth kind of kid. who lives on the outskirts of this weird little town and he's constantly sick and he's constantly sick because all around him are monsters that only he can see and he's allergic to them. And the only way he can solve his allergy problems is by helping the monsters solve theirs. And he ends up becoming friends with the neighbor girl whose name is Elena Potato. And uh, they go on adventures and kind of like solve these little mysteries and help these monsters kind of find their place uh, in the universe. And the art is gorgeous. It's a really fun, unique story. It's been an adventure for us translating it because the ideas in the stories are really complex, even for that middle grade reader. I mean, it's a book that an adult can enjoy easily. We've printed the first two volumes. The third and the fourth volume will come out next year. The big book for us next year is Bowie, Stardust Ray Guns and Moon Age Daydreams. That's Mike Allred and Laura Allred with Steve Horton. It's done. Mike has been sharing little bits and pieces of it on Mm -hmm. Instagram, kind of teasing it and getting people excited. That book is going to be huge for us. It's Mike's magnum opus. I previously worked a while back on a book called The Fifth Beetle with Andrew Robinson. And at the time, that book was kind of Andrew's magnum opus. It was like the best thing he'd ever done. This is kind of Mike's big thing. If you don't know Mike, the man has tattoos of Bowie. He fit as many Bowie references as he could into Madman when he was doing it. This was like his dream job. He had always wanted to do this. 
even when he had finished this work, the guy would email me every day and he'd be like, Hey, I just can't stop drawing Bowie. What do you think if we did this as like the eighth cover? And I'm like, Mike, we're not doing eight covers. What do you, what, you know, <laughs> he, he couldn't stop himself. It just kept happening. He just loves Bowie so much. And every bit of that love is really poured into this book. I mean, some of the layouts on some of these pages, I was like, how did he even think to do that? Just really gorgeous stuff. I'm excited for that book to come out. Oh, me too. Very much so. Big fan. I know <laughs> I know that you have seen Rush probably more than any other band in your life. Yeah. Right? And I've seen Bowie more than yeah. any other band in my life. So I'm really excited about it. That's awesome. Yeah. That's what I, I regret not ever having gotten to see him. I saw Rush 38 times. So wow, yeah. 38 times. <laughs> Yeah. I'm putting a price tag on that in my head. I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I was I was lucky. I had, I had good friends that uh, hooked me up a number of times as oh, well. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're getting into some of the fun questions now. So uh, let's continue. So you're a self proclaimed. Yeah, great. My geekiness was coming out all over the place. <laughs> yeah. So you're a self proclaimed rocker, big rush fan the band you've seen the most. I saw some stuff you put out there and the last concert you saw, and I have not seen this band, even though they're going to be in my area soon, Slayer. Yeah. When yeah. did you see them? Uh, I saw them at the beginning of this farewell tour. The very first date that they played was in San Diego. I drove down because we're in LA now and I drove down to see that one. I've seen Slayer probably, gosh, maybe 10 times now, but it was a great show. And I'm a metal guy. I mean, Rush is kind of like, if you looked at my music catalog, they're almost like the mellow band that I listen mm -hmm. to. Um, <laughs> but uh, I've seen Slayer, Megadeth, Anthrax, Metallica, all See, those bands four. like yep. a number of times. Yeah, yeah, a number of times. What I find interesting is in this post you put out that the worst concert you saw was Aerosmith. What happened? Uh, <laughs> was it just a were, bad day for them? You know, it's funny. Um, and I'm sure that this colors my opinion as well, because I'm not a big Aerosmith fan. Um, yeah, they were just bad. They were clearly bickering on the stage. The lights went up really early in the show. The promoter at the time, I mean, this is like a million years ago. And I, I was very young and most likely not in a sober state of mind. Um, Okay, but uh, <laughs> I, I just remember distinctly that the show like ended really early. They were terrible. They sounded terrible. They looked like they were miserable. We came out of the show. And my buddy was just like, "Man, I think that band is done." And uh, it wasn't long after that it kind of came out that they were all on drugs or they were trying to kick drugs or whatever was happening with them. Um, and then when they came back with all the love in an elevator and all that kind of stuff, I loathe all that music. It doesn't hold up for me, not compared to like the 70s stuff. The 70s stuff was really good. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not a big Aerosmith fan. <laughs> <laughs> no offense, guys out there that like Aerosmith. <laughs> well, yeah, I can understand. I mean, you saw them at probably their worst at that point, you know, before they made that big comeback. And the music was quite different, much more, uh, I don't know, I guess kind pop. of pop. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But you've seen Rush many times. What was the best performance? Ooh, um, that's tough. When I saw them on the Hold Your Fire tour, they were incredible. They kind of blew my mind. At the end of the show, like, they released balloons from the ceiling, and it was like a Mardi Gras kind of atmosphere, and they sounded so good. In San Diego, the place where you would see shows when, when I was growing up was called the San Diego Sports Arena, and it was an awful place to see shows the sound quality was so terrible rush was one of the few bands i ever saw there that made the place sound good <laughs> and they actually made it sound so good that they ended up recording that show and a couple of those tracks made it onto one of their live albums and it was the third time i had seen them at that point and it was just such an uplifting experience but i also saw their final show and myself and my friend that I went with, we both kind of knew it was the vinyl show. And at different points in the show, you know, we were laughing, we were weeping, uh, we, were, <laughs> we were highly emotional uh, for the show. And right in front of us in the crowd was uh, Danny Carey, Chad Smith, Taylor Hawkins, you know, and they were air drumming right in front of us. You know, like we were watching them and the whole show, they didn't stop air drumming like they just every song they were super into it that was a pretty incredible experience as well i also went to russia's rock and roll hall of fame induction that was incredible if you ever get a chance to watch that induction happen on youtube 
it's worth it. It's worth to sit through for the 20 minutes of it because it is pretty amazing listening to the crowd respond. I could go into all sorts of specifics about that show, but I won't. Suffice to say, that was a really incredible show. And I think a lot of people gained a lot of new respect for Rush after that show. Okay, well, I'm going to watch that for sure. Not right now, but I will watch it later. <laughs> <laughs> I'll email you all like the things. If you're a long-suffering Rush fan, as I am, mm-hmm. and I say long-suffering because we were the nerds in high school. We were <laughs> the, they're not a popular band. That's interesting, because when I was in high school, that they were a big thing. I mean, everybody seemed to like Rush in high school. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. They were big. You know, it was like the band that if you were a nerd or if you wanted to go to a concert and never see a girl, um, <laughs> you, know, you you were into Rush. Okay. And uh, they don't write sappy songs. They don't write pop songs. Mm-hmm. They they write songs that make you think. And, you know, and the time signature is like 7-8. It's not 4-4. Four, four. You know, like they write music that is complicated that makes you have to think. They did a lot for me, especially kind of growing up in a kind of screwed up household and all that kind of stuff. That Rush was like my escape. Like they were... They're my lifesaver in many ways. But it's kind of interesting to see how the paradigm has shifted over like the last 10 years. I think I Love You, Man, that movie like really helped. And I think, you know, they put out a couple documentaries where people got to see that they weren't this uber serious band and that they have a great sense of humor and that they're really good people. And I think the stability of who they were as people, they weren't rock and roll stars. They were like regular dudes who just happened to be really, really good at playing their instruments. All of them still married to their high school sweetheart. All of that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Like they're just like salt of the earth, really good people. I think like the thought process of who they are has definitely come around over the last 10 years. It's not as bad as it was when I was in high school. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's learn a little more about you. Now, I always ask my guests, what do you like to do for rest and relaxation? You like to surf. Yep. How often do you get a chance to surf? Uh, Not as often as I'd like. It's usually once or twice a week where we live in LA, halfway between where I work and the beach. So on weekends, I have a buddy who works at Warner Brothers who also surfs and we get up early and head to the beach and uh, and surf for a couple hours. But growing up in San Diego, that was all I wanted to do. And long before I decided to become a comic artist, I wanted to be a pro surfer. And actually, I surfed in amateur contests and all that kind of stuff. And was was not good enough to go anywhere with it. But it was something that I really enjoyed and still enjoy to this day. Uh, I just got back from a surf trip in Mexico a couple weeks ago, as a matter of fact. It's something that uh, if I could change anything, it would be to be independently wealthy so I could do nothing but surf and just travel around the world. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Now, thinking back, what was your favorite birthday and why? Oh, boy. Uh... It would be a tie between my seventh birthday, which was the bicentennial of America. I can remember it. You know, it was fun. And we wore like little Abe Lincoln hats with American flags on them and all that kind of stuff. And it was a good time. And my 40th birthday, we threw at a sushi place down in San Diego and all my good artist buddies that I'm really tight with, uh, they all came and which was a big deal at the time because they all lived in LA and I lived in San Diego. And uh, they all drove down, and we had an incredible night. That was probably my favorite, because I was surrounded by the people that I really love, and it was a good time. Now, I have a hypothetical question for you. Well, I always say that. I have a hypothetical situation. It's not a hypothetical (laughs) question. It's a real question. (laughs) If you were stuck on a desert island, what would be the one book you would want to have with you? Comic, trade, a set of books all related. What do you want to have with you to get you through just for pleasure? Oh, uh, probably have to say Lord of the Rings. That's the other thing that I'm pretty nutty about. I'm a big Tolkien nut. So yeah, I'd probably say Lord of the Rings. I try to reread it once a year and always find something new in it that I didn't really either understand or didn't glom onto the previous time I read it. So always an enjoyable read for me. Now, if an action figure were to be made of you, what would be your action figures accessory? A surfboard, maybe? Most likely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think that was an easy one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Didn't have to think too hard on that one. <laughs> what, sir, is your beverage of choice? Man, my wife would say coffee. I would say beer if I had a choice. 
but in general, it's usually coffee because I just work too darn much. So, okay. Now, if it's beer, <laughs> if you're relaxing and it's beer, you know, long week, relaxing for the weekend, what kind do you like? And I don't mean brand necessarily, but just the type. Is it a lager, IPA, stout? Now, you're on the West Coast, so it's probably not a stout, especially where it's warm. <laughs> what is your preference? I pretty much like all beers, except for Hefeweizens. I'm not a Hefe uh, fan, but I love IPAs. I love lagers. You know, during the summertime, I gravitate toward uh, things like Negro Modelo or Moosehead. Moosehead's a, a fun summertime drinking beer. But no, I like stouts. I like IPAs. I like Scotch Ales. I like Sours. I like it all. So yeah, hefts and I guess porters too. I'm not a big porter fan. I, I don't like anything that's sweet or has a syrupy aftertaste or anything like that. Okay. So you like cold beer. That's it. <laughs> that's your... <laughs> yeah. Cold. Yeah, in general. In general. Although, although in the UK, you know, they serve it at room temperature right. and I like that. I love good British brown ale as well. Mm -hmm. So. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm an equal opportunity lover of all beers. And my final question, how do you measure success? Uh, there's so many different ways to look at success. My hope is that I don't grossly embarrass my wife and children uh, <laughs> with anything I've done. Mm -hmm. I hope that the work I've done, whether it's publishing or the ink stuff, obviously, ink, Brazilian comics. And I hope that I have some, at least respect from my peers, you know, that's always a good measure of success. And I, and I hope that the companies that I've worked for are happy with the work I've done for them. Success, like I said, it can be measured in a lot of different ways. One quick follow-up question of all your inking work, which of it brought you the most satisfaction? You're asking some tough questions here. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm going to throw out a couple of books. I got to ink a guy named Stephen Thompson a number of times, and we did a Star Wars book. His work blew me away. It was so much fun to ink. Even though the book itself was not a great book, it wasn't a great read, but his art that we did together was just so good. That was a treat. Inking Zach Howard on an Aliens book, another big treat of mine. And just over like the last couple of years, you know, like getting guys like Jim Lee and Chris Pacello and Doug Mankey. Doug Mankey was like the first guy I ever did inking samples over. And then here I am like 10, 15 years later, inking Doug, you know, regularly on Green Lantern and then on Batman and Robin and Justice League and Detective and Superman, all these books, you know, it's been like a huge treat working with Doug as well. And he's such a fantastic human to boot. So, so many people. Carlos Deanda, when I got to ink him back at Wildstorm, I really learned to ink over that guy. At the time, I didn't really know what I was doing. I was just kind of figuring it out as I went. And Carlos really got me focused. I don't know. You know, there's just so many really good people that I've been thankful and really have had a good career of it. Well, we've just scratched the surface here. I mean, there's just so much that you've done, so much you've worked on, so much great stuff. I'll have to have you back so we can talk more. Oh, yeah. just, I mean, I just scratched the surface. I have more questions, but I'm like, well, I want to respect your time and respect my family's time. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> Mark, thank you so much for being on Creator Talks this week. Thank you, Chris. I appreciate it. And uh, I look forward to uh, the next time we talk. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Coming up in two weeks is Phil Hester. Phil is back with the book through Image Comics, Family Tree, which is being written by Jeff Lemire. And that one is coming up in November. And we catch up about The Wretch. The Omnibus is out, finally at last. So we can talk about that and some other work that he recently did for DC Comics. And I'll take a deeper dive with Phil during my Kicking Back with the Creator questions. But until that time, you can follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Creator Talks Pod. That's at Creator Talks Pod, where I will be posting my Saturday Silver Age and Sunday Bronze Age comics from my collection. And I think I'm going to also post some of the original art and prints that I have in the spirit of Halloween, my favorite holiday of all. 
of this podcast is completely free, and you can find it on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, YouTube, voice-enabled devices, and on Spotify, of course. And please subscribe. It is free. If you like the show, please rate and review on iTunes. Tell me what you think. And also, if you want to reach out to me, you can contact me directly through creatortalks at gmail.com. That's creatortalks at gmail.com. There are more interviews in the pipeline. I am getting those lined up for you, and they will be out every other Thursday. You know, Halloween's just a few weeks today, and I'm trying to get my costume together, and I know the kids are really excited about it. We've got the house decorated. We started right away. And I'll tell you, out here in the desert, because it's not so humid, it just feels more like fall than it did back on the East Coast. It's nice and cool and crisp. It's actually below average temperature right now. We've had nights in the 40s already. Yes! But it's wonderful. It's really, really nice. Do you plan on going out for Halloween? I mean, you know, you're taking the kids if you have kids, and you can dress up for Halloween. And, you know, even if you don't like to do cosplay, this is your excuse to do some cosplay. So go ahead and do it. Send your pictures of what you're dressing up as for Halloween. Maybe you're dressing up as your favorite superhero or your favorite monster. I'll retweet that. Let's see what the listeners have in mind for Halloween. I'm still not sure what I'm going to do. I might do what I did last year, because people around here haven't seen that one yet, or I might do something completely different. But until that time, I'll be reading my comics, both the new ones that are coming out every week, and those back issues that I'm hunting for to fill in those little gaps in my collection. And please, if you have some, share yours as well. I mean, don't send them to me. I'll be fine with me, but post them on social media. Share your favorite book of the week, or that little back issue gem that you found. You get the idea. Well, anyway, until we get together again on the show with Phil Hester in two weeks, enjoy your time, enjoy your comics, and thank you for joining me. This has been Christopher Calloway for Creator Talks. Until next time. Until next time.